Hello and welcome to the Island Stories podcast. I'm your host, Harriet Hadfield. Three years ago, I came home to the island and started a new life. It really got me thinking. Each and every one of us living here has an island story. This season, we've spoken with some wonderful guests, each with an extraordinary story to tell. So let me introduce this week's guest, the final one for this season, singer-songwriter Mike Christie, one quarter of the UK's number one vocal quartet, an X Factor finalist, G4, and a solo artist in his own right. He's adopted the island as home, and my goodness, are we lucky to have him. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. So the first question, as you know, I know you're a regular listener. Thank you for that. We always ask on the podcast, very simply, why the island? Well, I fell in love with it, hook, line and sinker. I adore the island. And it was some sailing friends of mine that actually got me into it. Um, As an adult, I visited them for a weekend. And I thought, oh, this place is rather nice. Um, And then only a few months later, I ended up staying for another weekend. I was keen to book, book in again. And I came back and I just thought, I need to live here. This is amazing. And I'd been in London because I'd studied singing. Um, and I got to the age where I just thought, I want something a bit more quiet, a bit more peaceful and calming. And um, I was sold. How quiet, peaceful and calming do you find it? The strange thing is, actually, my life is very hectic. It's very stressful. It's very busy. But what I found with the island is it really calms me down. And I feel like I'm always on holiday, even though I'm not. I'm not very good at taking holidays. In fact, I don't really do holidays generally because I love working but the island seems to calm me down and I think initially when I moved here I felt like it was my anonymity I had here I could leave all my work behind on the mainland and I could be quiet down here no one knew who I was there was no business to attend to and that would be fine but of course I got the bug and realised that I didn't really want to leave the island so I needed to set up work down here instead. And yeah we're going to talk about that a bit later on but you are incredibly busy on the island and as I said we're so lucky to have you. You've touched on sailing for example but what does your sort of island life look like? What do you like to get up to? Well I love all sorts of things really. I mean uh, tennis is a big thing for me. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I could play all day, every day, if I had the time. But sadly, I don't. And for me, that was the one thing that rescued me out of lockdown. Because with COVID, I lost all of my work for about a year and a half. Absolutely everything I've worked my entire life towards. And it was all gone in a heartbeat. And so tennis, which I'd played, you know, when I was younger, but not for many, many years, I discovered it because we've got wonderful courts up at Northwood House in Cowes, where I live. They're free to use. I'm also busy fundraising for it and helping keeping all that going together. But they're wonderful courts. And I'd been meaning to sort of try them out for a while. And lockdown really made me think, you know what, I need to get up there and do it. And it just took me away from everything. I didn't think about anything else and it was just really wonderful one of my great regrets in life is that I am rubbish at tennis and partly because it's so social it's wonderful I mean we all get on really well we have some sociable times as well and every year we have a hog roast fundraiser as well which I organize and we have a live band and there's an auction and it's great fun and um, it's wonderful I think to meet different people on the island from from different walks of life and you know some that have come from the mainland others that live on the island born and bred and I just find it fascinating meeting people and tennis has given me yet another opportunity to meet new people on the island and I just love it. Another thing sailing I know you've run marathons so do you get out running? Um, well I don't do so much running now um, I do go to the gym I love going to the gym 
Um, and I do all sorts of workouts as well. Um, I like to keep fit and it's, it's key for me. I have to, um, you know, you get to a point in life where actually you've got to work hard to um, keep up a good physique, <laughs> yes. but because I'm on the road a lot of the time and I'm performing, it takes so much energy out of you. Um, it's so physically demanding, emotionally demanding. You need to have a good sort of structure and a good healthy body to start with. And that is really key. So I like to keep active. And for me, just running around here, there and everywhere, being active is not quite enough. I need to have more than that. And I just find particularly weight training, I absolutely love. And it just, again, it takes me away from everything and I can focus on it and it clears my head. And you mentioned touring. I wanted to move on to that because right now, G4 back together, you're on the road, you're right in the middle of a pretty big tour. In fact, by the time we broadcast this in a couple of weeks, you're going to be back on the road, which is why we're recording it a bit in advance. But you've just finished your May dates. You've been to Hartlepool, Rotherham, Horsham, Chelmsford, most importantly, Newport, Isle of Wight. What's that been like? It's been incredible. And actually, the Medina Theatre in Newport, I've never actually performed there before. Um, I've booked many acts there and artists, but I've never actually performed. And we don't normally do a tour show on the island. In fact, that was our first ever as a group. And for me, I just said to the guys, we need to do it. I really want to bring us to the island. Um, and it was such a special evening. I had so many friends and family in that night, which was interesting, looking out at them and going, wow, oh, they're there. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep, yeah, oh, the mayor's there, right? Yep, yeah, okay, great. Um, seeing all sorts of people and recognising people. And it was wonderful to see the support. And it sold out. Uh, well in advance which was fantastic and it just felt really special it really felt like I'd come home and that's the key thing for me on the island I just feel at home and um, it's just it's just a wonderful sense a wonderful feeling walking out on that stage just knowing you've got that support yeah that must be amazing that sort of moment where you think no this really is home now this is really the place that not only that I've taken into my heart but they've taken me into their hearts as well totally I don't feel you know where I grew up there's nothing there for me I don't go back to that none of my family live there anymore um and I don't feel proud of it in the way for me cows is my home and I forget almost sometimes that I didn't grow up there I just feel so proud of it and I'm quite evangelical about it when I go over to the mainland indeed anywhere around the world and I talk about the Isle of Wight and that is a special thing to have that bond to a place. I think that's partly why we wanted to do this podcast. And, it, it, you know, sometimes I do people who've only lived here for a, a couple of years and, and someone will inevitably say, well, they're not a real islander. And I, I argue back at that because I think we are so lucky here that once you have crossed the Solent mentally, physically, laid down your roots here, you take it, you take it straight away as your home. And that's quite a special thing. Definitely. And I've been here about 12 years now, I think. And what's interesting about the island, people are very funny about, you know, were you from the island? You know, did you grow up here? Were you? And actually, if you think about any other place, if you were to live on the mainland, people don't ask that. Certainly, if you live in London, you don't go, well, hang on a minute. Are you from London? Did you grow up here? It just wouldn't enter your head. And I don't know why people are so obsessed with it on the island, because ultimately you want people from all over and, and people from different walks of life and different cultures, because that's what really brings vibrancy and energy to the island. I couldn't agree more. And I think we need to be as aspirational as possible for this island. And one of the problems we have here is um, a bit of a brain drain where some of our young people inevitably go off to the mainland, they go to universities and, and they get they get jobs there. So if we can exchange that for, for people coming over and taking it as their home, then that can only be a positive thing. Definitely. And I think there is this real 
sense that if you're growing up here, you've got to escape by the time you're a teenager because there's not a job for you here. There's, it's it's very dull and it's and and I think that's a very archaic way of looking at it. Maybe that was historically, but there are so many job opportunities here now. And when I think of the events and things that I do on the island that's opening up job opportunities that weren't there before. And I'm very keen to explore that and explain to people. Um, and something I've done is workshops over here and, and kids with musical theatre background, for example, and they're sort of saying, well, I'm looking at studying in London, what do I need to do? And there isn't necessarily the guidance here and the help. And I try to instill that with young musicians and just say, look, this is these are the options and this is what you can do. But there are certainly so many jobs out there and I think people aren't very good at really researching and thinking actually is there a job on the island just because they've heard for so many years well there's no point in looking because you've just got to move to the mainland and I think it's key that people do the research and realize that there is something for them. I know you do a lot of work with young people and I want to definitely touch on that a little bit later on. Um, I just gave the slightly exhausting geographical timetable of your tour I mean, how do you cope with that kind of lifestyle where you're on the road you're in and out of hotels you're performing every night? I find it harder and harder because I love the island so much and I'm so obsessed. I never want to leave. So um, as I walk along the front in cows um, towards the red jet and I just think, why am I doing this? I don't want to go. But when I'm on the road, I, li- I realise I live for performing. I love being on the stage and there is no feeling in the world like it. And it's not something I could just give up. And in fact, in lockdown, when everything just went and... I lost bookings for I don't know how many hundreds of shows. Um, I did online shows and that kept me sane during that period because you, when you're a performer, it's in you, it's in your blood. You can't just sort of stop and, and not perform. Um, you won an Isle of Wight Radio Award for that. So you say it kept you sane. I think it kept a lot of other people sane as well. Uh, yes. Well, yes, thank you. I'd forgotten about that. I didn't want to make too much of it. But yes, no, it was an amazing thing to, to have. And for me, what I did, I did, I did these shows, but I, I spoke about my mental health, um, which I think as a guy, when you do that, it's somehow more powerful to people because they don't expect that a guy's going to talk about their feelings. And I just said, you know what? I'm not feeling great today. Um, and this is why. And I would give my listeners goals and I would just say, look, today, and we forget how bleak it was, how difficult it was. But I remember one advice I gave to someone. I said, look, today, just find something, a goal that you can achieve. And it might be, I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to make a cup of tea. And you might think, well, that sounds ridiculous. But actually, that's where we were. People had no motivation to get out of bed. They lost their work. You know, maybe if you've had a shower, that is an achievement for the, for the day. And I ended up writing a song during lockdown called Stay at Home. And it very much had that narrative in it of just saying, one of the lines saying, I got up, I showered, no longer a coward. And it was an incredibly bizarre time. And I think now we've moved on so much from it, we forget how difficult it was. I think you're right. We forget how difficult lockdown was. And I think we're still seeing some of those problems from mental health. One of our recent episodes that we did this series was with uh, Vicky Howarth from the Isseropia Foundation. And we were talking about how if high profile people like you talk about mental health, that really helps people to feel like they're not alone. Is that something that you found during COVID that you were helping people by saying, look, it's not just you that feels like this? It's really important because loneliness is so 
prevalent out there. And people, whenever they're experiencing something, they do very much feel like I'm the only one that's ever experienced this and I'm the only one going through this. And the reality is it's it's very common. And with COVID, no one knew how to respond to it, how to react. No one had lost their work, um, you know, a year and a half of work before in many cases. And there was no right or wrong way to react to it. So I think, you know, it's really important that we talk openly about it. I... I lost my dad from cancer in his 50s and I think that really made me grow up. Um, I feel I'm a much better person as a result, a much stronger person. Obviously, I would give that up in a heartbeat to have him back. But it made me realise that you've just got to talk openly about things. And I talk about death very openly because of it. And I know that can be shocking to some people. But I think it's important that we do talk about these things because... We let them fester inside us and it builds up as such a pressure and it makes everything so much worse. And so that's why I'm a big believer in it. And I carry with that, that with me every day, um, thanks to my incredible dad, um, who I see in the mirror, interestingly, every day when I look <laughs> in, I go, my goodness me, you're turning into him. Are you but the of course, spitting image? I'm, I wouldn't say I'm the spit, <laughs> but I'm turning more and more into him, which actually, had he been alive now, of course, I'd be deeply embarrassed, I guess. Um, but I'm, I feel proud. I've got, um, I've got two sisters, so they don't really want to look like my dad I guess um so I'm very proud of that and I just go you know what he's not here to be him or look like him so I'm carrying the flag and he was such an incredible person and always knew what the right thing was to say and he was such a good coper and I've realized that I'm a very good coper and where I can help people as much as possible I've I've done some free online shows where it's not actually me singing but where I've talked about health mental health also about diet and I'll always say look I'm not a trained dietitian I'm not a trained therapist but this is what I've learned about things and it's actually really helped people um and it just gives me a lot of satisfaction to think I can help people if if I know something that they don't um I just think it's important just to keep the dialogue open it reminds me as well, another guest that we've had recently, Anthony Goddard, he talked about losing his dad at a very young age and he said something really similar. He said, I'd recommend it in terms of it being a life-changing event that makes you really, you know, push forward with your life and, and, and have to achieve great things, which he has. So that that resonated as well. Um, I want to talk about the X Factor because I can't believe that the first series was in 2004 I um I asked producer Alex about it earlier I was explaining obviously who you are and I said he was on the first series of expat in 2004 and Alex went Harriet I was six and <laughs> it wow. was one of those mic drop moments I was like okay fair enough it's a long time ago you guys were the runners-up I think you were the real winners I still convinced it was a little bit fixed because they didn't want to have a classical music quartet win but maybe you can give me more insight into that what was that like as an experience it was the most incredible the most horrendous the most <laughs> wonderful joyous hideous experience of my life it was but overall a very positive one um, we were very fortunate to get so far we entered as a laugh uh, we were a barbershop quartet at Music College. Uh, we were studying at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. That's the G. There are four of us. And we were doing, well, actually, we'd all got places uh, for postgrads in different colleges. So we were on the undergrad in the final year. And um, 
we decided to put a farewell concert together just to go, you know what, it's been really fun. Let's just go out with a bang. Let's do a little concert before we go our separate ways because we can't carry on. And at that point, there was a TV advert saying there's a new reality TV show concept where it's not just soloists but also groups. And we just thought, well, let's go for it. I mean, we're not going to get very far because we'll be classical and I think we're whatever, we're a bit boring. Um, but let's do it. Let's give it a try. And then we turned up and there was this great sea of people, a long line of people, mainly women, very scantily clad. We turn up, turn up in our suits because that's how we've been taught as classical singers. That's how we, that's how we um, roll. And so we stood out like a sore thumb. So the cameras were all over us. And, and uh, they said, well, where have you come from? What are you going to sing? And we said, well, we're from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and we're going to sing Bohemian Rhapsody. And you could just see there thinking, okay, this is going to be car crash. Let's uh, let's hover around <laughs> let's these. Maximize this. And it was just such a buzz going around us. It was just a bit. This is a bit weird. Um, anyway, we got through. Um, you do various producers rounds before you see the judges, and um, they said, "Yeah, you're through." And we just thought, fine. But there was no sort of emotion with it. Like you know, you really go. We thought, wow, we must be what they want. Um, and because we initially had a an arrangement which I brought to the group because we were a barbershop quartet, it was for Bohemian Rhapsody where it was the six or seven minutes. It was just the four voices, so we do all the guitar solos, no backing accompaniment. Um, and so it, you know, it, it it was great when we used to busk. People loved it, and we used to do gigs at livery dinners because we were out in the city of London. Um, but we didn't realise quite the impact that we'd have. And then we got through to the judges. They said, it's amazing. It's a breath of fresh air. And before we knew it on the live shows, got through to the final. And then we got signed and we sold two million albums that first year, went to number one. And it was just like, hang on a minute. We were meant to be on our postgrad courses, which, of course, we we delayed for a year because we thought we're still young as classical singers. There's no rush with it. And it all, all was just a bit of a whirlwind. We were headlining at the Royal Albert Hall. Robin Gibb came on stage with us and performed a, a Bee Gees medley. Leslie Garrett came on and performed Barcelona. She's become a really good mate. She's a regular visitor to the island, actually. She's got some great mates in Bembridge. And um, Sir Cliff Richard duetted with us as well. And it was just an absolute roller coaster, actually, which reminds me, there was also a roller coaster named after us, G-Force, in Drayton Manor. (laughs) And we won um, Brill Cream Hair of the Year Award. We beat David Beckham. It just went crazy overnight. And we were recognized everywhere everywhere you went out you just got hassle everywhere and it was amazing I mean we were early 20s we thought this is really cool um (laughs) and it just went from strength to strength and we couldn't believe our luck but my goodness me was it hard work we were working 24 7 we didn't stop and we had so many requests for different things and yes we did tours um but even on the days we weren't touring or gigging we were just constantly doing press and media I've got about half a dozen scrapbooks full of all the original newspaper articles, photos, interviews. We were on all sorts of radio stations. And it's when we started to get recognised by people, we were like, hang on a minute, you're really famous. And you, yeah. And we would go to a party and Graham Norton be like, oh, there's G4, David Beckham again. And we were at BBC and uh, Dawn French comes running over saying, oh, G4, I love you. I voted for you. Um, can I have a photo with you? And you just think, wow, okay. You know, this is quite having an impact on people. But I think there were 
12 million people watching the final or something crazy like that. And well, I then, was definitely one of them. I, oh. I'm still convinced that you guys were the real winners. I'm still convinced. And you certainly were, as you've just said, you know, the, the life that you led after that. Um, I was watching back some old clips last oh, night dear. on YouTube. Uh, gosh, it takes me back. And you, I think you were really fortunate, actually, to have Louis Walsh as your as your mentor, because I always remember watching X Factor and thinking he's he's a really good cheerleader for his acts. Is that the experience that you had? Well, he had a lot of experience with Westlife before us, and obviously they've gone on to be such a huge band and continues this day. They've reformed. Um, he his real strength really was as a manager and song choice, and he really tested us during the X Factor, during the boot camp and the judges' house rounds, um, and he gave us. Radiohead's Creep and obviously it's not a natural choice for a classical crossover group and we created an arrangement of it and now I would say it's one of our biggest songs if not the most requested song people absolutely love it and I think that's what's crucial with our success is it's taking a song and totally sort of unhemming it really and restitching it with our own sort of harmonies and that's been really key. So watching back last night, and just because we can't be all positive about it, I, I watched a, a Britney Spears song. <laughs> Simon Cowell was absolutely brutal. He said probably one of the most horrendous things I've ever had the misfortune to sit through. <laughs> I mean, what was it like being... And I know some of that is part of the drama of the TV show, but what was it like? You know, you were young guys and you had someone like Simon Cowell being that brutal. I think really what it sets you up for is a career in the industry. And if you can't take that sort of criticism, I would dare to say perhaps it's not the right industry for you. It's so tough. And yes, it was brutal to hear. But I think also that was the key to our success. Again, going back to song choice, that one really divided people. And certainly online, and my goodness me, was it a totally different world online then? It was all about MySpace and all the forums. There wasn't the social media. Alex won't um, know what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, no one had even heard of it then. Facebook was in its early days. Um, but the response from the Britney particularly, it was very much a love or hate. And I think that is so key. And anyone that is successful sparks an opinion. And I've always said, you know what, I'd rather someone hate us I mean hate is a very strong word isn't it I'd rather someone go you know what I don't really like what they do but they know who we are um but beyond that it's like you know what I can respect that they're good singers but it's not my bag and that's totally fine that's music that's taste and we can't be everyone's cup of tea but I think that Britney Spears song really kind of helped launch our career because it got people talking and whilst the haters would go what on earth are they doing the lovers were backing us up and it made them stronger, more passionate, more loyal. Um, and then I remember halfway through the live shows, because we must have done about eight live shows, I guess, we ended up in the bottom two. And we thought, you know what, we've had a great ride, but we've obviously not captured people's hearts and that's it. And then there was the behind the scenes show on ITV2, which we went on and we just thought we've got nothing to lose. And we actually did a... A, a skit of a music video that was out at the time and I can't remember the, for the life of me the name of the song now but they were in a gym with leg warmers and um, armbands and all sorts of things headbands 
and we dressed up as that and we started taking the mick out of each other, which we did anyway, but we didn't do that on camera. And that totally transformed where we're at because people were like, hang on a minute, these guys are funny and they are down to earth because there's this perception with classical music that you're going to be boring and a bit dull. And actually, we've only become more like that. And, and now we're looking at the tour. Yes, we do some real, you know, heart-rendering um tear-jerking songs and have people bawling their eyes out but then the next time we we turn and suddenly we're taking the mick out of each other we're doing something that's really silly and that is in our nature that's the way we are and people experience our relationship as a four on stage and I think that's it's not more important than music but I feel like I want to say it is it, it it glues the show together and it's one thing people hear the music and they want to hear the vocals and the harmonies but it's also an insight into our personalities and the fact that you know what we actually all get on we have a laugh and we're having a time of our life and that is really important to an audience for them to fully relax and to come on the journey with us let's go back then to life before living here. You were born 21st of April, 1981, which means you are a couple of weeks older than me. So oh, wow. We are, yeah, we are, we are pretty much exactly the same age. You were born in Surrey, but you started singing professionally when you were eight years old. So you've been doing this for a very, very long time. You're right, don't rub it in. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, and to me, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I don't remember not singing, but... I was actually a really quite badly behaved child, um, five, six, seven years old. Um, and I won't go into the detail because it would be a bit boring, but ultimately someone said to my parents, get him into music. And so they did some research and I ended up becoming a chorister at the age of eight, which I did for five years. And I would say that totally and utterly set me up for life because it taught me the discipline um, I was professional from the age of eight because we were singing at weddings and funerals and any sort of occasions anyone wants to book us for. And we had to turn up. We had to be professional. We had to do a good job. Um, we loved the fact, obviously, we were being paid for those. But we sang in five church services a week and it instilled in me that incredible sense of duty. Um, you would turn up, obviously, we would rehearse every week, but some services you would turn up and you would not know the music it taught me how to sight read so um, and obviously it's been a lot of work since it's an ongoing process it's not just from them but it means I can pick up a piece of music I can sight read it I can play and sing at the same time and I can learn songs and also if I have a dinner party or something's going on you know we gather around the piano and we have some fun and have a bit of a sing-along um, and so that's a useful skill that I started from a very early age but also our um, choir master his partner was um, an agent uh, with with movies and we did a lot of soundtrack work and also appeared in some movies. And the most famous, without a doubt, was Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I think I must have been 11 or 12 when it was filmed and then subsequently released. Um, I was lucky because I was very tall and I managed to get away with going to the cinema to watch it, even though it was a 15. Um, although, um, yes, it was an interesting start. The script is quite an interesting start. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was quite amazing to see myself on the screen. But what was amazing about that film is just learning on the job about a film set and being there. We were 
instantly excited to meet Rowan Atkinson. He was obviously Mr. Bean to us and he was so kind to us. He gave us so much time. We had photos with him. He signed things for us. He couldn't have been more generous and that was really special. And we, the only other actor actually we recognised, bearing in mind it launched the career of Hugh Grant and a number of other people, um, was an actress called Sarah Crow. And she was a blonde woman, um, one of the brides. And the reason why we recognised her is because she was on the Philadelphia advert with, in the cloud with the squeaky voices. I know exactly who you mean. So, um, and we were just like, oh, she's the woman from the advert. So we ran over to her and said, you're on the advert on TV. And she's like, yes, yes, okay. She probably gets that all the time. And um, yeah. Can but- you do an impression of how she says the cheese? Well, I can't remember. It's so long ago. I mean, this is 25. Philadelphia. Oh, that was it. Yes. Philadelphia. I just remember it being sort of a squeaky voice. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, more recently, and I say more recently, probably about five to 10 years ago, I ended up doing a charity gala that I sang a song at. And they had all sorts of different actors and singers doing different things, um, doing one thing. And actually, I got to meet one of my absolute heroes, Ron Moody from Oliver. Um, I watched so many musicals growing up um, and he was there and he sang a song from Fagin at age 85 or something like that. And I shared a dressing room with him, which was very exciting. Um, but Sarah Crow was there um, and I said, I met you about 20 blah, blah, you know, years ago, five years ago, whenever it was. And I just want to apologise. I was one of those annoying choristers who came up to you and said, oh, can you do the voice? And, you know, I saw you on the advert, so I'm really sorry about that. Anyway, she said, oh, that's fine. And we had a photo together. So I feel like I've made my peace with that. Um, but it was a wonderful experience doing that that movie. And um, the only thing is we did struggle in one of the things where Rowan Atkinson was the priest. And he said, Father, Son and Holy Goat. And as a 12-year-old, I mean, it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And we couldn't stop laughing. The director <laughs> said, right, if you carry on, you're going out because you, you can't do it anymore. We've got to get this take. I was like, OK. So you took some time out when your voice broke, I've read. Um, you got an A-level in chemistry, which seems quite random. But um, you then went on to study music at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And I suppose that's what took you into the X Factor with those with those three friends. Yes, that was the full-on training in terms of classical training. But yes, my voice broke. I got to a stage as a chorister where I was head chorister. I did all the solos. And then suddenly you just can't sing. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it just sort of squeaks a bit. And you think, what do I do? And I fell out of love with singing. So I sort of gave it up for a bit. But ultimately, I had got a music scholarship at senior school and also an art scholarship. Interestingly, I was very heavily into my art. Um, and so the two kept sort of fighting over me because you have to spend a lot of time in both disciplines. And um, ultimately, I got back in singing. I was in all the choirs at school. I was in the musicals. I played in the orchestra as well. I used to play the timps in the orchestra as well as flute. But I then went to the timps, which was great fun in the oratorios because I'd be the bass soloist. And then I'd go back and play the timps and then come forward again. And then I got my place at the Guild Hall, which I knew in advance so I was working at the hotel, knew I was then heading up there to London and it really set me up. It was four years, an undergraduate course, and you really learnt every discipline. And that was the thing. It was interesting with the instrumentalists where they would do a couple of hours a week almost. But with, with singers, we also had to do languages, we had to do movement, we had to do drama. So it was very much a, you know, a nine to five, Monday to Friday course. It was really very intense, but you need to know all those different disciplines and obviously learning different languages, being able to sing in different languages. And it really set me up. And it's 
with the classical training, it enables you then to sing so many different styles. And I love the variety. I do love singing opera, but I love singing musical theatre and rock and pop and having the opportunity to do those different things. Well, which brings me on to all the work that you do on the island in terms of encouraging children into that world. Um, Free arts workshops for over 500 children you've done. I mean, that's amazing. Well, yes, that's part of the White Proms Festival that I set up in 2018. It's now our sixth year running this year. And for me, it's about giving something back to kids. I was so fortunate as a child. I had so many opportunities to perform. I had so many inspiring people around me. And I'm still in touch with all the teachers, the music teachers that helped me way back right when I was a chorister. And um, not only does it inspire kids, obviously, to go into the arts, but also for most of them, they've got no interest in going into it as a, as a career and they won't go into it as a career. But what it gives them is absolute confidence. And it, you can see it has a knock-on effect on all of the work that they do at school, having that confidence. Um, and so we do disciplines in musical theatre, where they not only learn a song and a routine from the West End, but they then get to perform it at one of the headline shows, A Night at the Musicals. Um, and then we have opera workshops. Again, you've got kids that have never experienced, in fact, adults that come with them, they've never experienced a classical voice live. And when they're in a small room they just instantly start crying because they're so overwhelmed by it. And it's wonderful to be able to give that, particularly when you get so many people saying, I don't like opera, I don't like classical music. But actually, if they experience it live, if they're brave enough to go, you know what, I'm going to try it, they get um, overawed by it. And um, comedy workshops, you know, having a four-year-old standing up, you know, from the beginning of the class, wouldn't say Booter Goose, totally shy. And they stand up at the end and they do stand up for five minutes. And absolutely everyone's rolling about with laughter. Um, and also some drumming and... Um, percussion workshops so a real variety of different things and I think it's so important to expose kids to those arts that they would never otherwise get to experience and just to inspire them in whatever way or just to give them confidence and do you think it's something that the island you know it's often the way we have such defined borders and we are quite small you know relatively do you think that it there's a lack of perhaps cultural provision for kids here is that something you're trying to change it's hard to say really because there are so many opportunities wonderful performing art schools and dance schools on the island um but i think obviously not everyone can afford those um and it's very much in my mission i mean i'm always trying to do so much and there's so many other things i want to do i just don't have time to do but it's very much on my agenda to take these workshops into schools um and to go to assemblies so that people are literally exposed to these things because singing for people you know growing up they don't necessarily think it is a career for them or music um and i think it's so important that they at least get to hear about it and know that this could be an option for me um and for me to give a chance to talk about my career and how it's how it works and the fact that it is tough it is a tough industry but um hopefully if i can inspire people along the way but yeah there's just too many things i want to do but i will get around to it and the White Proms, an amazing event. Uh, people are talking about it more and more. It's in sort of late to mid-August. Just give me a very quick idea of what, what people can expect this year. So it's our biggest ever this year. We've now gone to eight days of festival. And we celebrate very much different disciplines every single day. So we've got a night at the musicals. We've got a comedy night, opera, country music, 
That's um, exciting. We, yes, that should be good. And then we also do drag. And we've got the finale, which is on the final Sunday, which is a full orchestra. It's the pomp and circumstance, singing Jerusalem, flag waving. Amazing. We also have three kids shows this year. Um, we've got Pop Princesses. We've got um, I Spy with My Little Life, the little kids, and also Farmyard Circus, which is an incredible acrobatic show. So there really is something for everyone. And it's interesting, we're in our sixth year, but it's amazing, yes, as you say, people are really seeing it as a great festival and it's very much established now on the festival but there's still people on the island that don't know about it and it's it's really hard when promoting concerts generally on the island and spreading the word and I've found that word of mouth is by far the strongest thing um, but you know it just takes time to set these things up but I mean we do have thousands of people that come over the days and it just gives me such satisfaction to see people enjoying themselves and and for me setting up the festival it was all about what can I do for this island that will really make a difference and that can go on way beyond me being here Um, and we've obviously got such an amazing heritage of festivals on the island but I've created something that kind of fills all the gaps in disciplines that don't exist and it's a really special event and every year I get to January and I just think why am I doing this it's so much work because I do run it single-handedly and it needs to be that for me to enable to make it work um, and I don't do it for money or satisfaction in that sense it's just about giving something back and to be able to cover costs and make that difference on the island. It's funny you say all of that because, um, as you know, I always ask people uh, who know my guests, you know, what it is that makes them such a unique islander. I spoke to one of your friends who said he absolutely loves the island and since making it his home has thrown himself into everything and anything to help people and support his community. I don't know anyone else who's more willing to put up their hand to make things better for other people. And I said we're very lucky to have you. I really believe that. Oh, thank you. Well, that that is very sweet. I just am so driven I shock myself with the drive I have and, you know, people remind me every so often, they say, my goodness, you don't stop. But I just love what I do and I'm not very good at sitting still. I, you know, for me, if I was to go on holiday and sit on a lounger for two weeks, I would be so bored because I'd be thinking of all the things I could be doing, the songs I could be writing. And, um, you know, I'm currently writing my second opera. I'm also writing a TV drama. There are so many things I want to be doing and am doing, and I just have to find the time to do it. But I just love life and I find that the island just gives me so much inspiration and, and, and gives me so much energy and passion that I just can't stop myself. So I'm just going to keep going for now. Okay, finally on the episode, we ask all our guests a quick fire round of five things about the island. So are you ready, Mike Christie? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> Number one, your favourite place to grab a bite to eat. I have to say smoking lobster in cows, and I know that some of your guests have said it before, but I've never had a bad meal there. The service is great, and I just think it's so brilliant what they've done. Um, But ultimately, there are just so many places on the island. But for me, because it's always just been perfection every time I've gone, that's why I've gone with that one. That's a great choice. Number two, your favourite beach. So there's a little beach. I'm not sure of the name itself, but it's off um, Scratchell's Bay. So it's just south of the needles where you've obviously got the allen bay on the north side and it's a little private beach that actually you can only get to by boat oh wow and i discovered it when i recorded a video i i wrote the official song for the tour of britain cycle race which was meant to come to the island last year and and didn't happen in the end fingers crossed for next year 
And I filmed the music video up on the um, Coast Guard I've watch station. Seen that. Yeah, that's amazing. So looking down, um, and they've got cameras all around there, and they like you know watching every angle. And I discovered that little beach there, and they say yes, people come in by boat, and it just feels like a little haven thing. So if you go there, you would be guaranteed to be the only person there. Wow. Okay, great answer. Number three, your number one island activity. Oh, I think you might have answered this already. I would say tennis, yeah. um, because. I love it so much, but I am so fortunate to have courts five minutes walk away from me that are free to use. And again, that's why I've launched myself into that and I help fundraise for that. And I'm on the fundraising committee at Northwood House where they are. And that's where the White Proms takes place as well. So I'm doing more and more stuff for them. And we also have White Proms Wednesdays, actually, which are lunchtime concerts every month to elongate the festival throughout the year. So I'm doing a lot more stuff for them. But the tennis thing it just really relaxes me and takes me to a different place. And I just love it. Number four, which island charity is closest to your heart? Independent Arts. They are incredible and they're celebrating their 35th anniversary this year. And they use an arts-based programme to inspire islanders and to improve their well-being on the island and there is so much loneliness about and it really gets people out of their house, out of their... You know, when they're struggling and uses the arts to improve how they're feeling and give them sociable um, situations where they come in, they get a cup of tea. And I discovered them actually um, when I set up the White Proms Festival because I wanted to have an associated charity. And when I came across them, I just thought this is such a perfect match because they do workshops like we do at the White Proms, but it's really using the arts. And I've seen throughout my entire life how the arts just totally transforms people. And that was what was so sad in lockdown, particularly when the arts just went. That was the one time people needed the arts um, to help them through it. And it's just incredible. And I've been to some of their singing workshops where they do singing for breathing. And you can just see the joy people have when they turn up. And it might be the only time they leave the house in the week, um, but it's just such a highlight for them. And... What's amazing with that is their songs that of so many different styles that they perhaps haven't sung for 50 years, but the words come out, they just know what they're doing. And I think it's so key that we support them because independent arts aren't that well known on the island. They are becoming more and more known and I've now become an ambassador for them. And so I really shout about them from the rooftops because they do such incredible work. Um, and they need to be known more. And they've got a big fundraising dinner coming up for their 35th anniversary, and they've asked me to sing, which is very exciting. Um, and we're looking at more and more ways that we can work together to help spread the word on the island. Well, that was very good ambassadoring for them. Uh, number five, your hidden gem. There is a state-of-the-art recording studio in Chail. And I don't think anyone knows about it, and I'm not sure they do want anyone to know about it, so, <laughs> so don't tell anyone. But um, it is the most incredible facility. It really is world-class. And I am very excited to be going there later this year to be recording with them. So I cannot wait for that. Mike, thank you so much. It's been brilliant to get to know you better and hear your island story. If you want more island news, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, 5-stories.co.uk. I'm Harriet Hadfield. My producer is Alex Warren. You'll find us on Instagram at Island Stories Podcast. This is the last episode in the second season. We've had a blast and we hope to be back with you in a few months' time with season three. In the meantime, have a brilliant summer. Goodbye. <laughs>